Now I would like to introduce our first panelist, the beautiful Anne-Marie. If you would like to unmute and start your talk, I'd love to hear. Okay, I thought I was unmuted. There you go. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. All right. Well, my name is Anne-Marie and I am a compulsive eater. You know, when I was first asked to speak on this topic, I was absolutely thrilled because I love the big book because it wasn't until I worked the steps directly from the big book that I found my God and my abstinence. I've been in OA for 21 years and through the grace of God, I'm maintaining a 70 pound weight loss. And I say, thank you, God. And I also say, thank you, Bill Wilson, because you are the one who authored this book except for one chapter of the first 164 pages. So, you know, I love history. I love to know where I came from, how I got here and how the world evolved around me. So most of you watching, probably you love the big book too. At least I hope you would, I hope you do. So I'd like to pass on to you what I found while researching the history of this book. I'm going to tell you how this book came to be written and as with anything this huge, it wasn't easy. I'm going to tell you about Bill W. and Dr. Bob and how they met and how they started this thing known as Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the parent company of our Overeaters Anonymous program. So, you know, this is our history too. We need to be aware of our history. Now, there's a lot that goes into how they wrote it, and I'm not going to be able to give you everything that I really wanted to, but I hope that I give you the, the, the important nuggets so that when you go away from here, you can say, I now know all these little trivia things. Okay, so I'm going to start out and I'm going to tell you that, you know, Bill W. was a very successful Wall Street businessman, but his career was in shambles because he was a chronic alcoholic. So in November of 1934, he was visited by his old drinking buddy, Ebby Thatcher. And Ebby took time to explain to him how Ebby was about to be sent to jail, but some men from the Oxford group appeared with him in court and they said to the judge, please let us take Ebby into our care. We have a cure for alcoholism. So the judge said, all right, I'll trust you guys. You take Ebby. So Ebby did not have to go to jail. So one of the founders of the Oxford group, his name, I'm not going to tell you now because I don't want to go into the story, but the Oxford group is based on a spiritual movement. And it's, and it's based on the four absolutes of honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love. They believed that if they lived good lives and they believed in God, that they could carry the message of how God saved them and then they would remain sober. So Ebby went to Bill because he wanted to convert him to the Oxford group. So Ebby's and Bill's meeting is highlighted in, in the big book and it's on page eight. And Bill states, I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life 
that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. So Bill was able to remain sober as he worked with alcoholics, but he wasn't able to keep them sober. So he was sent to Akron on this business trip in Akron, Ohio, where he met his first convert. His business deal fell through and Bill was really feeling disgusted with himself. And he really felt that he was gonna relapse, you know, that he really wanted a drink because he was feeling really bad. So he found this church directory in the hotel and you know, he made a phone call to one of the local pastors in the church and said, you know, can you put me in touch with another drunk? And that's how this businessman from New York met the proctologist, Dr. Bob from Akron. And this was in May of 1935. Now, Dr. Bob was a church going, God believing member of the Oxford group, but he couldn't stay sober. These two men got together and they shared their stories with one another and realized how much they had in common. They both wanted to get sober. They both had tried and they both were brought into it by the Oxford group. But Dr. Bob just couldn't give up the drink. But Bill told him about his physical allergy to alcohol. And he told them about this mental obsession that he learned about when he was hospitalized at Towns Hospital in New York. Well, Dr. Bob got it, and he was able to remain sober until the day he died. And this was the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous. So Bill decided he was going to stay on in Akron, and the two of them began to work on how was the best approach to keep these alcoholics and keep them sober. So they began, to go, began going to local hospitals and acting doc, asking doctors to let them speak with the drunks who were admitted to the hospital. Well, you know, they had much success. Eventually, Bill returned to New York and he approached Dr. William Silkworth, who was the medical director at Towns Hospital, where Bill first became sober. And he asked if he could visit with the men who were hospitalized there. So now this idea of the book developed when Bill W. and Dr. Bob realized that their system had helped over 40 men stay sober for more than two years. So this book, this was Bill's idea. He saw it as a means to carry this message far and wide. Well, you know, Dr. Bob wasn't too keen on the idea. On the idea. You know, he said, you know, what we're working, what we're doing now, it's working. You know, we're spreading the book through word of mouth. We're continuing to visit alcoholics and hospitals. So, you know, I don't think we need a book. But Bill persisted. And with the help of one of his converts, Hank Parkhurst, Parkhurst, a successful businessman and recovered alcoholic from New Jersey, they earnestly set on their path. So now this is a story of how Bill and Hank Parkhurst continued to push for the publication of this book. And of course, you know, money was the first obstacle they faced. They really needed an influx of cash to continue their work. Hank decided, well, you know, we really need to go out and let's meet with some prominent businessmen and we're going to ask for their support. And, you know, if we tell them our plan and the idea about this book, these heads of business, they're going to see how, well, you know, maybe this can help me in my business. Maybe this can help some of the drunks that I know in my business that really aren't working very good. And maybe this can financially improve the, our bottom line. 
So Hank was able to get a meeting with John D. Rockefeller. So they hoped that they could get $50,000 seed money from John D. Rockefeller. They were hoping that if they could get that money, then Bill could continue to write, start writing the book. Well, Mr. Rockefeller liked the idea of what Bill and Bob were doing, and he wanted to help them. But you know, he said, you know, if money becomes involved, it's gonna ruin the entire plan, and you're no longer gonna be changing on helping drunks, but you're gonna be focusing on making money. And so he said, you know, but I like the idea. So, you know, I'm gonna give you a one-time gift of $500, and it's gonna help support you along the way. So now that they had some money, Bill started writing the book. So with the help of Hank's secretary, Ruth Hawk, Bill started writing and Ruth started typing. Bill wrote the chapter draft outlines on his legal pads, and then he dictated the expanded text to Ruth. So he would stand behind her, telling her what to type as he looked over his outline. And then each week, he would take the drafts, he would meet with people at his home for their weekly meetings, read them to him, and ask them for suggestions for revisions. And he had Dr. Bob do the same thing with his weekly meetings in Akron. So the chapter to the agnostic, though, created some difficulties. As Bill did the way he wrote out the steps in chapter five, especially cha chapter, especially steps three and six. So the main concern was the religious tone. The Akron group, they were really into the Oxford group and they wanted this book to have a religious tone. Well, the New Yorkers said, you know, we want it to be more psychological, you know, bring in the religious, but you know, but let's keep it also psychological. So eventually the two groups were able to come up a comp with a compromising phrase that they put in to the steps three and 11. And we know that phrase as, God as we understood them, understood him. So Bill was the primary author of the first 164 pages, but others didn't make major contributions to the stories in the back of the book. And this is the way Bill wanted it. He wanted to be a compilation of instructions on how to stay sober, followed by real stories of the men who have succeeded. He wanted the men who were attending the meetings in both Akron and New York to write their stories. So he gave them an outline of what he wanted so that they more or less would be in sync with each other. So next they were ready to find a publisher. So they had to find someone who would be willing to give them an advance on the proposed book. So they approached the religious editor of the Harper and Brothers, a prestigious New York publishing house. Bill went to the appointment and with him, he carried his two chapters that he had already written, his own story, and there is a solution. Well, Harper was interested and offered a $1,500 advance against future royalties, plus 10% of all sales once the manuscript was submitted. Well, you know, they said, you know, this was a deal, but it wasn't such a good deal. So they said, you know, Maybe we need to go the self-publishing route. You know, we really don't want to give up control of the manuscript to a professional publishing house. And also, you know, this $1,500, it's not going to keep us sovereign for very long, maybe another six months. 
And that's not going to include the operational expenses. And then they would have to wait until the book started selling to coop up up any of this money. So this was their real dilemma. They knew the book would create publicity and with many inquiries, but there was no way they could continue to run the office with no money coming in until after the book was published. So Bill and Hank decided to approach Mr. Charles Towns, and he was the owner of the Towns Hospital where Bill recovered. So they felt that it would be to an advantage for Mr. Towns to support them with the book. And you know what? Towns agreed. He, he offered to pay them $300 a month as a loan, and that they agreed that they would repay him when the book started making money. So at this point, they had enough cash to support them until they could get the book published, but they still needed to come up with cash to pay for the editing, the publishing, the advertising, and the printing of the book. So Hank, being a compulsive, compulsive addict, he came up with this plan that they would start their own publishing company, and they would call it the 100 Men Corporation. And you know what? I'm a conniver, so he said, let's start selling stock in it. You know, and, and we're gonna we're gonna sell it to the people who have who are sober. So they went about doing this. They issued 600 shares and they started selling these shares for $25 a share to recovering alcoholics. Well, Ruth Hawk, she became the first secretary. You know what she said? If it wasn't for Bill Wilson, the big book would have, big book would have never been written. But if it weren't for Hank Parkhurst, it would have never been published. But Bill never wanted to be known as the author of the book. He felt that the message needed to be delivered as a communal experience rather than from an individual. And it was so important to him that it be presented as a group effort rather than the work of just one man. And another reason, you know, he was becoming increasingly uncomfortable because as more people were coming into this program, they were putting him on a pedestal. They saw him as the guru of, of this wonderful program. And he wanted to put some checks on his ego. He knew he needed to do that to remain sober. He did not want to relapse. And he knew that, you know, we addicts, we're self-centered and an integral part of our program in getting people to stay sober and to bring new people into the group and to go through the steps is we need to remove this self-centeredness. And having his name removed would certainly help. So Bill asked Hank Parkhurst, who had been experienced in a, as a businessman in the, as an executive with Standard Oil, he asked him to write the chapter, The Employers. And as it turned out, the chapter to the wives was written by Bill also. And this really upset Lois, that was Bill's wife, because she felt qualified to write this chapter. After all, she lived with a drunk for many years. Who, who better to write this chapter? Well, Bill declined. And why did he decline? Well, he told her it was because he wanted the chapter written in the same style as all the other chapters. Well, that was a likely excuse, and that was just to soothe or hurt feelings, which it did not. He thought important that it was important that this chapter should address several sensitive and complicated questions 
that Bill was unwilling to delegate to people who were not alcoholics. Also, he didn't want to place himself in a position to have to edit what Lewis, what Lewis wrote. That's the last thing he wanted was to have trouble with his wife. Well, Lois wasn't happy. And she stated in her memoirs that she was really hurt and that she still hadn't over the slight. She really thought she was the best person to write it. So Bill wrote that chapter. So after another last minute addition to the book was the foreword, which opens with the optimistic claim that there are more than 100 men who have recovered. And this, this forward goes further to tell the reader that the main purpose of the book is to show them precisely how to recover. And the forward also included several key concepts, which over the next 10 years would become the basis for the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. So Bill knew that he really needed to find someone in the field of addiction to write an introduction for the book. And this is when he approached Dr. William Silkworth. He was the chief psychiatrist at the town's hospital. And Dr. Silkworth, who people called Silky, he agreed to write the letter. And that was incorporated into the opening pages, the doctor's opinion. So now they had finished writing the manuscript and they were ready to send it off to the editor. So the editor was paid $300 to edit the manuscript. He further reduced the pages from 600 to 400, and he made recommendations for how the chapters should be ordered in the book in order for it to read more smoothly. So now they had the revised manuscript and they sent it on further to another editor, Janet Blair, and she was gonna make some creative suggestions to make the entire book more readable. And then she and Hank Parkhurst, they edited the individual stories that were written by the recovered alcoholics. So at this point, all the tasks were checked off. The title and the selling book, the selling price of the book were next. So many titles were bantered about. Well, we could call it Alcoholics Anonymous. We could call it The Way Out. We could even call it Bill Wilson's Movement. We could call it The Empty Glass, 100 Men, etc. Well, they got together, they narrowed it down to two, The Way Out and Alcoholics Anonymous. So they asked one of their members to go to Washington, D.C. to visit the Library of Commerce because they needed to find out, you know, how many books were published with those two names. They didn't want to put that name on a book that had lots of books already with that name on it. Well, this man found out that there were 25 books titled The Way Out but none titled Alcoholics Anonymous. So here's some trivia for you. That's how the book got its name. Now for setting the retail price of the book. They wanted the book to make money because they knew the organization had to survive, but they didn't want to price it out of the range of the people who could benefit from it. So they decided to set the book at $3.50 per copy. And you know some people wanted it to be sold cheaper but to appease them and to convince the buyer that they really indeed were getting their money's worth, Bill said to the printer, you know, why don't you use the thickest paper available? And so here's some more trivia for you. The original book was so bulky and heavy, that's why they called it the big book. 
because it was bulky and it was heavy and they had printed it on this really heavy paper. So they met with the printer and they ordered 5,000 copies. And you know how much it cost them to print 5,000 copies back in that time? $1,783.50 for the first printing. And so they agreed to start the presses rolling for a $500 down payment. When the book was being printed, they vigorously started their promotion campaign and they mailed 20,000 postcards to every doctor east of the Mississippi River. Then they read an ad in the New York Times paper. The following time, then the Times followed up by publishing a positive review of the book. So here on April 10th, 1939, they received the first shipments of the books and they began distributing them. There have been 16 printings of the first edition with three more editions to follow. And each edition had further revisions, none to the first 164 pages, but to the stories. And as of 2020, 40 million copies of the big book have been sold and it has been translated into 70 languages. I'm going to wrap up on a sad note. Five months after the first printing, Hank Parkhurst relapsed. He went back to drinking again and he was never able to recover again. So he is the most forgotten man in AA history. Had he stayed sober, he would surely be hailed today as one of the movement's co-founders along with Dr. Bob and Bill W. Instead, his name and place in the official story has all but been eliminated. Today, he is known as the co-founder who drank. I so hope that you enjoyed hearing about the history of this book as much as I have enjoyed researching it and presenting it to you. Thank you. Anne-Marie, a recovered Fantastic, Anne-Marie. Thank you so much for this insightful, lively, and informative view on the big book. Next, we have up the lovely Lisa, panelist. Thank you. Thanks, Christina. And I always hate going after Anne-Marie. We do it quite often. And she is historian without compare. Um, and I think what's so interesting too is kind of the connection between the three of us that are speaking today. I was born and raised in San Diego, moved to Chicago and then moved back to San Diego. Anne-Marie from Chicago moved to San Diego. And I think, Kimmy, didn't, did you originally come from San Diego and then moved to Chicago? Okay, there we go. Chicago, San Diego, back. Anyway, the, the, what that shows is how connected we all are, interconnected because of Bill. This is the big book and it is a design for living. It is a life raft in the sea of despair. It is what we can all relate to. 
the beauty of it is that we, let's stop looking at the differences and let's start looking at the similarities. That is what is so incredible about starting with Bill's story. Here is this stock white male stockbroker from New York who talks today to billions, I would fair to say, of people across continents, across socioeconomic barriers, languages. Look, we have an interpreter here speaking on our, on our convention, translating into Spanish. Just absolutely incredible, incredible opportunity. By the way, I'm Lisa, I'm a compulsive overeater, I'm bulimic, and I'm your panelist. So Dr. Silkworth talks about, as Anne-Marie referenced, talks about the disease, the disease aspect of what we have, that it's not a moral issue. But Dr. Silkworth says doctors have synthetic knowledge. Not, synthetic knowledge is not enough. You have to have an experience. And that experience is what we take, each one of us, into the reading of the big book. Bill talks about himself. He fared forth with self-knowledge, but self-knowledge self and high hopes, but that was not enough. Every time I went, got abstinent, I feared forth that my self-knowledge with high hope would be enough to keep me abstinent, but it never did. I've been in program for 31 years. I've been abstinent 11. Why? Because every single time I went back out, I thought this time the bite won't hurt me. This time I'll be okay. This time, I know what to do. I've worked program. I worked the steps. But I didn't live the big book. I thought every time I could do it on my own. And every time I came back worse than before. And what was worse was the spiritual death that I was experiencing every single time I went back out there. So the one thing that I believe Bill's story teaches us, or at least taught me, was how much I failed to heed the ominous warnings of, my, of, of the people around me. Every time I heard people tell me, you're bad, you're getting worse, this is a problem. And every time I thought, I've got to find a way. I've got to find a solution. But I wanted to find an easier, softer way. I thought every time I could do it on my own. But food, as it was for Bill, ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. I would take a bite and then I'd be off to the races. We look at this book and every single page in it, and we look at page eight, where we, in the middle, we say 
See, the bill said, fear sobered me for a bit. Well, fear made me abstinent for a bit because I saw how desperate I was becoming. Then came the insidious insanity of that first bite. Right? So then we get into what Anne-Marie referenced, that soon he was to be catapulted into the fourth dimension of of existence. He was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. That's what became in my life. That is how my life has become incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Because why? Because I learned that I can't take the first bite. I can see that I lose control once I start and that once I start, I can't stop. That I have a react, an abnormal reaction to the substance that's different than the normal eater. And this is what Dr. Silkworth talks about. But then we go forward even further than that. And we see that the most important thing to know is that it's because I have a spiritual malady and I cannot recover until that spiritual malady is overcome. And that is what Bill talks about. Now, for all of us, the good news is, and this is my, my, my uh, hallmark, if you will, of when I talk about the big book, is the good news, the hope that's in this book is that if you turn to page 12 of the big book, in the middle of the page, it says, it was only a matter of being willing to believe a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. So that's the good news for all of us. All we need, all we need is a willingness to believe. We don't need anything more to get started in this program. That's the beauty of this book, is that it's going to teach us that. And then if we go on through Bill's story, we're going to turn to page 14. And this is perhaps a, um, this, this is the ominous warning, if you will, on page 14, first paragraph. Simple but not easy, a price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. Well, destruction of self-centeredness, that's how I live my life, self-centered. Everything is about me. All things revolve around me. If there's a problem, I'll figure out a way to fix it. If I want something, I'll figure out a way to get it. But what I learned is what Bill learned, and that is that on the page 16, a compulsive overeater who's eating is an unlovely creature, and that's me in my self-centeredness, right? I have to look at that. I have to do the work that it takes. I have to be willing to put in black and white how this disease has affected me, what I have done as a result of having this disease, that's looking at the first step, the first part of the first step, and then seeing that I can recover 
as long as I have a relationship with a higher power. As long as I take that spiritual malady and turn it around, I can reach other compulsive eaters. I can reach other bulimics. I can reach other anorexics. Because why? Because we all can relate. We find that common ground that Bill talked about. So if we look at Bill as just a white stockbroker from New York, none of us are gonna, none of us are gonna be able to make the recovery gains that we need in this program. So where do we go from here in the book? There is a solution. That's the very next page in this book that we look at. So what is we what is there is a solution? Well, we realize that we had an illness and we come to believe that there's no other way to get out of it but through a spiritual experience. So that is why we are here today, Anne Marie, Kimmy, and I, and the rest of the speakers. So we can relate to you and you can relate to us because the ex-problem eater who has found the solution, who is properly armed with facts about themselves, can generally win the entire confidence of another compulsive eater in a few hours. That means that we're all here for each other. And that's what the nature of this book is, to work together. This doesn't work alone. This doesn't work in a vacuum. This doesn't work if you think you can do it on your own. We're moving along in the book. So here's my favorite line. And this is on page 20. How many times have people said to us, I can take it or leave it, why can't he? Why don't you eat like a gentleman or quit? I can't eat like a lady. And that is what this book has taught me. When I am scraping the bottom of a popcorn barrel at the movie theater, when I'm shoving tortillas down my throat with my back turned to my family so that they don't see what I'm doing, when I'm eating off of my daughter's plate, when I'm vomiting, when I'm taking laxatives, when I'm using diet drugs or other drugs in order to avoid eating, I don't have control. I don't. And so what am I going to do in order to recover from the seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, I'm gonna develop a relationship with a higher power who I'm gonna walk with hand in hand through the big book and through the recovery process. How many of us have, if we turn to page 21, used, eaten, right when it was the worst time possible? How many of us haven't shown up for our family, our friends, our employers, because we were eating, hiding behind closed curtains, closed doors, the horror and remorse of what we did the night before. How many of us have special abilities, skills, aptitudes, and a promising career ahead of us, but yet we're down on our luck, down on our knees, minutes, minutes, before something big is about to happen. The dictionary describes ism as the abnormal state or condition 
resulting from the excessive use of something. So I must see, and that's what this book shows us, that there's a big difference between the results of my compulsive eating and what makes me a compulsive eater. That means I need to look inside of me for my problem and look outside of me for the solution. The solution is God. The solution is my higher power. And that's what this book is about. So why do I behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown me that one bite means another great disaster with all its attendant suffering and humiliation, why is it that I take that first bite? It's because I have a disease. But it says, perhaps it will never be a full answer. Opinions vary considerably as to why the compulsive eater reacts differently from normal people. We are not sure why once a certain point is reached, little can be done for him or her. We cannot answer the riddle. It goes on to say, and this is we're on page 22, we know that for a while the compulsive eater can keep away from food as he does maybe for many months or years, but he'll react much like other men. Once we take any food, whatever, into our system, something happens both bodily and mentally, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any compulsive overeater will abundantly confirm this. So that's all well and good. But the next paragraph is what's so important. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first bite, thereby setting the terrible cycle of motion. Therefore, it says, the main problem of the compulsive eater centers in my mind rather than my body. If you ask me why I took that bite, I can't tell you. I'm sure I could give you a hundred excuses. We all could, right? She was mean to me. She looked at me funny. I didn't get the job. I got the job. I lost weight. I didn't lose weight. I got a promotion. I didn't get the promotion. My kid, my kid is a monster. My kid's not a monster. My husband and I are fighting. My husband and I are getting along perfectly. Whatever reason that I think the hundred, what, the, any one of a hundred alibis, the reasoning is that we don't know. In their hearts, we really, this is back on page 23. We really do not know why they do it. But once this malady has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. Here is the, here, here's the money, here's the money line. Would you, if on page 23, ready? Okay. There is the obsession that somehow, someday they will beat the game. That is the great obsession of every compulsive overeater that somehow, someday, they will beat the game, right? I just want to eat and not gain weight. I just want to diet and be able to stick to it. I just want them to come up with a pill. I just want them to come up with a magic spell. Whatever it is, the therapists and the nutritionists and the diet doctors and the promises, all of that that we do. What this book tells us is that the tragic truth is that if we are a real compulsive overeater, the happy day may not arrive when we can beat it. So what do we have to do? Well, 
let's move on. We're looking at page 24. And here's the italicized lettering. Remember, in the big book, if there are italicized letters, you need to pay attention. You need to pay attention, as Anne-Marie referenced, because printing at that time that the big book was written was very expensive. And so that's, yes. Your time is up. I'm sorry, hon. The timer okay. is uh, not <laughs> working, I guess. And uh, it's Kimmy's time. Kimmy, I, <laughs> so, so. I concede to you. And um, I love you all. Read the italicized words. Lisa, thank you. Lisa, thank you so much for your experience, strength, and hope with the big book. You're highlighted those real, you know, uh, with your limited time, you've highlighted so many important things, willingness, there's a solution, the disease, fantastic. Thank you so much. Next, we have the indomitable Kimmy out of Chicago. Kimmy's uh, always a lively one as well. We have a great panel this morning. Who needs coffee? Uh, if you'd like to go forward, Kimmy, I look forward to your share. Thank you, Christina. And thanks to everybody who's doing service at this convention. Congratulations on doing such a good job and putting it together. And um, I'm really grateful to have been asked. So thank you very much. My name is Kimmy. I'm a compulsive overeater and a bulimic. I live in Chicago. You are right. I have always lived in Chicago, but I spent three months living in San Diego because I thought, you know, if I move, that'll solve all my problems. And um, I'll be healthy there because everybody's healthy in San Diego. And one of the best gifts I got was um, this was two years ago and my mom had just died. I don't want to get choked up this early, but my mom had just died and I stumbled into the Oasis where it was filled with not only a thriving OA community, which I had not found in Chicago, um, but also a room filled with like moms and helped heal me at this really painful time. One of the most painful times in my life of recovery was the, my time in San Diego. I felt really led there and I felt really led home. And I'm really grateful for where I'm at. And the truth is, is I fell apart in San Diego. I, it changed my life and it changed how I felt about myself. And I fell in love with myself in San Diego. And so now I'm comfortable wherever I am. That's the truth. Um, and so, but I'm glad to be in Chicago. I love Chicago. And if you ever come visit, look me up. Anyway, so my name's Kimmy and I'm very afraid of the interpreters because I am a fast talker. I am like a big mouth. I'm afraid of the timer and the interpreter. So I'm gonna, re I'm really trying to talk slow. Um, okay, but I have, an abstinent date. And I just want to, um, I find that when people come to conventions, it's either two types of people, one who have been in recovery and they want to be a part of the fellowship and they want to be a part of it. And, and it, it's something to do to be a part of all this, something bigger than us. We want to be together. We, we finally found people who understand us and get us, and we want to spend our time together. 
And this is how we spend our time together. We want to learn about our disease and also how we're going to get better and how we're going to help other people get better. That's that's why we kind of come together. That's what I think. Or the people that are still really suffering and trying to figure it out. Like, how do I do this? They all seem to have something. I want it. I don't know what to do. And so I just welcome you. But those people that are really suffering, like I feel for you. I have been there. I hated being surrounded by people who were recovered, who had it all together. I hate those people when I'm not feeling that way. So welcome to you. And I'm glad that you're here. And I hope that you get something out of this conversation or the many others part of the convention. Um, but I will tell you a couple of things that might be helpful to you. One is that um, I have an abstinence state. And what my abstinence means to me is that I don't binge and purge. My abstinence is based on behaviors, not a certain type of food. A lot of other people have different abstinence that means something else. So that was really confusing to me when I was new. I came here for AA from AA being sober 10 years and it was very black and white. I knew exactly what to do. OA, I felt completely lost. And so I know what my essence is. I know what the date is. I'm not vague about what it looks like. So that's the first thing. I also have a home group. That home group just means it's my favorite meeting in OA. No offense to any others. There's millions of, especially on Zoom and pandemic, but mine is the Better Together meeting where we meet every single night. It is definitely a home group, a lively group. There's a lot of home group members here. So if you're looking for a new meeting, in addition to any that you might love, check out Better Together. It's fantastic. Um, and it has been a gift from God, that meeting to me. That meeting, to start that meeting was a gift from God. And I'm very grateful for it. And now there's 200 people a night at that meeting who struggle with the same thing, but are also rejoicing in uh, the solution and the fellowship, which I think is greatly needed in OA. So that's just my opinion about that. And I also have a sponsor who happens to be here, Monica. And so those three things are really important for me to not only remain abstinence, but also not to be too bad obsession of the mind. Because I believe that any kind of addiction is a two-part addiction. One is all the physical stuff, the physical allergy, maybe a certain food gets me or certain allergies, my body and my brain are not wired the same way when it comes to food or any other substance. Um, and food can be like a drug to me. So that's the first thing I learned. The second is like what Christine said brilliantly, my disease centers in my mind and I'm going to use whatever I can. And how obsession of the mind looks to me can be different every single day. It can look like this. Um, that Marilyn, she's looking at me funny. What's she looking at me for? Do you see Marilyn looking at me? I got to go over and talk to Marilyn about how she's looking at me. That's obsession in the mind, right? Marilyn doesn't even know I'm alive because Marilyn's thinking about Marilyn. I'm thinking about me, Marilyn, me, 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 and what you think of me, right? That's obsession in the mind. And sometimes Marilyn can be my boss, my employer, my sponsor, whatever, my cute boyfriend, whatever. Okay, let me get to the big book because I will tell you. But I will tell you that I came to OA at 10 years sober because all my sober friends are happy, joyous, and free, and I want to kill myself because I can't stop eating. I've gained all my weight back. I, I feel like a loser. But I will tell you, weight loss was not, weight loss might have been my only motive when I first came here, but it was also because I didn't want to live. 
I might not have had a plan. I might not have been suicidal per se. I did not want to live. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. I had a host of friends, gimme, gimme, gimme. Because when I got sober, my whole life changed. And because of that foundation, I was able to do this deeper work. I believe this is deeper work. I went into a room of OA in Chicago and I hated what I, who wants to come to Overeaters Anonymous? Do you? Like even the name could be better, right? Nobody wants to come here. We come here because there's some problem. There's a hard thing. And that's what I wanted. I, yeah, I wanted to lose weight, but I wanted to not hate myself. I wanted to not talk about my weight in every conversation. I didn't want to say to me, that's five, five minutes left. Oh, what? Okay. Listen, I had a real hard time deciding what to talk about in the big book. There are so many wonderful things, but it gets us on the first page. This is a big, sick text. There's lots of other texts lots of other things. This is helpful to me. This tells us all about our problem. It tells us all about our solution. And it tells me, gives me direction in my life. It tells me my most important thing, the reason that I am alive is to help others, to help others. It tells me how to help others. It's called working with others. OA people, I really believe this is very important. AA, we learn this message often and early. Get out of yourself. You're so selfish. Go think of someone else. Go find someone to help. OA, it's like, take care of yourself. Put yourself first. Well, there's got to be, for me, there's got to be a middle ground. I know that I am alive and recovered to help other people to tell the message about how I found that recovery. What happened to me was I came to OA. I hated myself. And oh my God, I don't have time to tell you what happened to me. But What I did was I started to pray to a God that I didn't believe in. And I started to ask God to help me that I didn't believe in. And I trusted the people in the group to be my higher power. I was, instead of focusing on what you can't do or what you don't want to do, get away from my food, dietitian, don't tell me how much to eat, dietitian, stop talking to me about my food sponsor. Instead of focusing on what we can't do, focus on what we can do. I'm willing to go to meetings. I'm willing to call three people a day. I'm willing to answer your call. I'm willing to sometimes listen to my wonderful sponsor. I am willing to help other people. That's what I'm willing to do. If I'm willing to do the things I'm willing to do, then God's going to work on the rest. The other people will work on the rest. And suddenly food will be less an idea for me. We eat because of something else. Eating is the symptom. Not eating is the symptom. I am desperate for love and validation and attention. I didn't get it. I was starved for my whole life. I have a terrible traumatic story and all that. And we don't have time for all of that. But I filled it with food my whole life. And once I could recognize that's what I need, that's what I want. How can I find it somewhere else without the food? How can I talk to this little girl inside of me and say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to treat you bad anymore. I'm going to love you up. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to talk nice to you. I'm not going to feed you poison. I'm not going to make you do bad things. Once I could learn about that person and what I was really trying to feed, and also the idea of powerlessness, which we talk about in the book, we say we, we agree, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm powerless, but we still think we can do it. We still think that we should be able to do it. This is not a diet. I hate to tell you that newcomer, old timer, whoever. This is not a diet, but we want it to be. We want it to be that easy. And the truth is, is we are powerless over this. We're not helpless, right? Like we can pick up the phone and we can call. But a lot of times what we do is call after we eat and talk about how we feel. I hate myself. I hate myself. We need to call before and get that power greater than ourselves to help us. 
you know, help me. I don't know what I'm doing. The biggest thing I get from the big book is trust God, clean house, help others. That's my reason for being alive. I have to trust God 